You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. We have been in this series of the book of Colossians for a couple of months now, and last two weeks ago, we hit the second major part of the letter where Paul transitions, and he transitions from indicative to imperative, from theology to ethics, from belief to behavior. And at the beginning of chapter 3, when he hits that transition, he might have surprised us a little because he begins this main part of the letter that deals with behavior. He begins not by giving us a to-do list, but rather by directing our thinking. Do you remember this? Back at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul said, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So to love widely, to live faithfully, we must think deeply. Now that's counterintuitive for some of us perhaps, so let me say it again. To love widely, to live faithfully, we must think deeply. It's the first thing Paul wants to teach us in this part of the letter that's now dealing with our behavior, our conduct, which flows out of our convictions, what we believe about who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. So that's where we left things. That's where we hit the pause button two weeks ago with this idea that the Christian community is a learning community, a thinking community. Today, Paul will teach us that the Christian community is a beautiful community, a beautiful community. Now, our culture is obsessed with physical beauty, right? We're obsessed with it. Americans spend billions of dollars a year on cosmetic surgeries and procedures. Adults, teenagers, men and women are chasing a certain type of physical look, a certain type of body, chasing it more than they chase anything else. Listen to me, it's not the bad things that become our idols. It's the good things. Good things that become God-like things in our lives. Family, money, the body. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, glorify God with your body. In 1 Timothy, he goes even farther and says, bodily training is of some value. It's right for us to care about our bodies, to be good stewards of our bodies, because our bodies are our tools for serving the Lord in this life. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, care for the body can become a consuming interest. Fitness can become fixation. Stewardship can become obsession. In the passage we're studying this morning, Paul will teach us about a far greater beauty, a beauty that in God's eyes is of great value, a beauty that doesn't fade, that doesn't turn to flab, a beauty that lasts. It's the beauty of the Christian community, this wonderfully diverse community brought together by Christ and together living for Christ. Let's look at this community, let's look at this passage, and we'll break it down into just two parts this morning. Only two parts, only two points today. Not sure I could hold three in my head, to tell you the truth. So we're going to go with just two today. 
let's look at the beauty of this community in detail and then how to preserve that beauty. Or we could say it like this, how to be beautiful and how to stay beautiful. How to be beautiful and how to stay beautiful. First, how to be beautiful. Now in the first part of this passage, which is by far the longer of the two, Paul will give us five attitudes, two concrete actions, and then two summary statements. Let's look first at the five attitudes. They come in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And notice first the command, put on, as in put on your clothes, get dressed, adorn yourselves. That's why I say this is a passage about beauty, how to be beautiful and how to stay beautiful. Paul is calling for us to put on something, but it's not a type of, it's not a brand of clothing that he's interested in, it's a brand of living. It's the Jesus brand. Paul is calling for us to put on these attitudes, these virtues, the ones that Jesus himself models for us and that he enables us to display as God's chosen ones, chosen for a saving and transformative relationship with him. Jesus shows us how to live this way and he provides this way of living for us. If you'll remember in the previous passage, Paul called for us to take off certain vices, to strip off these sinful attitudes. And now he tells us to put on these five attitudes or settled ways of thinking, feeling, and living. What are they? First, put on compassionate hearts. Compassion, to have compassion is to be moved, to be moved by someone else's misfortune. In the Christian community, in this beautiful community that we are a part of, we are moved by the misfortune of others. As Paul can say in the book of Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We weep, we share tears here. And what are tears? Liquid love. To cry with someone is to love them. It's to love them in such an intimate way that you are moved by the hurt they are experiencing. Put on a compassionate heart. Second, put on kindness. This is the next step. If compassion is being moved by another's misfortune, kindness is doing something about that misfortune. It's contributing. It's bringing something beneficial to that situation of misfortune. I see my brother or sister hurting. I'm moved by that because of my compassion for him or her. And now I want to come alongside him or her and help in some way, in some tangible, kind way. Third, Paul says, put on humility. Now, you might remember this word appeared back in chapter 2. The same Greek word did, that is, but it was translated differently. It was in a negative context there in reference to the philosophers, the false teachers in Colossae. And so there it was translated as asceticism. Paul said, let no one disqualify you, church, insisting on asceticism. That's what the false teachers were insisting on. And what is asceticism? Well, it's a severe, a severe, almost self torturing type of discipline, it's self-punishment. 
This is what the false teachers in Colossae were advocating, some type of self-punishment as part of their system of spirituality. But Christians know better. We know there's no place for self-punishment, not in Christianity, because Jesus has taken the punishment for us. He's dealt with our sin. He's dealt with our guilt. I don't have to punish myself, and you don't have to punish yourself. So there is no place for asceticism, self-punishment, but Christians are called to put on humility, not self-punishment, but self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. The humble person is not thinking of himself, not thinking of herself. Humility is an others-oriented way of living. It's looking to the needs of others and not thinking about the self. Now, the fourth one related to this, Paul says, put on meekness. Meekness is not having a high view of yourself. It's not throwing your weight around. Meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. Strength used wisely. Put on meekness, Paul says. And then finally, patience. Patience. The ability to wait and to wait calmly on a certain outcome. To be patient is to be a non-anxious presence. This is the beauty of this community, which of course means that this is the beauty that each individual within this community should strive for by the power of the Spirit within us. Jesus models these attitudes for us perfectly and he enables us to display them. This is the beauty of the Christian community. Now Paul goes on in the next verses to give us two concrete actions. He wants us to understand that these virtues, these are not hypothetical, theoretical, no, they're visible. You will see them and what do they look like? He gives us two concrete actions so we'll know. Verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So what does the beauty of this community look like? Very practically speaking, it means we bear with one another. We put on all of those virtues in verse 12, and then we put up with each other. You see how that works? The very verb that Paul selects here means that life in this community will not always be easy. We must bear with each other. Sure, we've been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sure, the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts, but Grandpa lives in your bones. Our tendencies, our sinful tendencies and desires, they remain and they must be put to death. And that means that I am not always easy to get along with. I am not always easy to love. And friend, neither are you. We bear with one another. And second, we forgive. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. That's why we forgive, because we are forgiven. 
Our Advent series this year is gonna be a series on forgiveness. So after this Colossians and Philemon series, I'm gonna do a whole series on this subject of forgiveness, how to get it, how to give it. Does forgiving mean forgetting? How does forgiving fit with the idea of justice or forgiving with the idea of justice? We're gonna hash out all of that. So this morning, I'll be brief here. I just want to stress the importance of forgiveness in the Christian community. Or to say it another way, the danger of unforgiveness in the Christian community. See, we think that unforgiveness is hurting them, the one who did something to us. We think it's hurting them, but actually it's hurting us. Unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. It's hurting you, friend. It's hurting you. The Russian writer Leo Tolstoy has a short story that really brings this point to life. Tolstoy tells this story as an illustration of Matthew 18, 21, where Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? The story goes like this. In a certain village, there lived a man named Ivan Sherbakov. Ivan was comfortably off in the prime of life with a wife and three sons who were all able to work. They always had sufficient grain to see them through to the next harvest. They paid their taxes. They were a hardworking, respectable family with everything to live for. And they might have continued to live quite happily. But right next door lived lame Gavrilo. Gavrilo and Ivan became deadly enemies. It wasn't always this way. When Gavrilo and Ivan's fathers were active, the families got along well enough. But everything changed when the young ones took charge. It all came about through some trifle. A hen belonging to Ivan's family was frightened, probably by some children playing, and flew over the fence into Gavrilo's yard. And there it started to lay eggs. That evening, Ivan's daughter-in-law went looking for the hen. She arrived at Gavrilo's door and was met by his wife. The lady's conversation, well, it got off on the wrong foot and then quickly turned ugly. Insinuation became outright accusation. Accusation became aggression. And before long, all hell broke loose. Members of the two families gathered, dragging in both fact and fiction. The women all shouted at once as they tried to shut each other up, and they were not too particular with their language. The men took to fists, Ivan tearing a handful of hair from Gavrilo's beard. If you're a beard owner, you know how much that hurts. <laughs> the villagers ran to see what was wrong and had great difficulty separating the feuding families. And that was how it all began, with a hen, her eggs, and the question of rightful ownership. Gavrilo went off to the district court to start proceedings. His wife went round to the other neighbors bragging that Ivan was bound to be convicted. And so the hostilities continued. The only person who could see reason was Ivan's ailing father. 
You're acting very stupidly, he said to his son, making a mountain out of a molehill. No one is perfect. We are all human. These things do happen. Now go and make it up and let that be the end of it, Ivan. But if you let it fester inside you, it will only be worse. But the young people turned a deaf ear. After all, he was just an old man, rambling on and on. As the feud endured, both families were haunted by the suspicion that each was always out to get the other. Every misfortune that befell them, they would blame the other family. Ivan and Gavrilo were constantly locked in litigation, and like dogs, the longer they fought, the fiercer they became. You wait, I'll make you pay for this, each would say to the other. This went on for six long years. In the seventh year, matters came to a head. Gavrilo was drunk, lost his temper, and struck Ivan's daughter-in-law, who was pregnant at the time. Gavrilo was sentenced to a flogging, and as the sentence was read in court, Ivan heard Gavrilo say, he's arranged to have my back flogged and it'll burn terribly, but he'd better watch out that something of his doesn't burn even more painfully. Having been haunted by suspicion all those years, Ivan concluded, and staunchly so, that Gavrilo was threatening to burn down his house. One night, with those words of Gavrilo ringing in his ears, Ivan had a thought. Everything's so dry now, and it's windy too. He could break in. He could break into the yard from the back, set something alight, and off he'd go. Now, if only I could catch him in the act. So Ivan went. He went to have a good look in the yard, and sure enough, sure enough, there was Gavrilo setting fire to a bundle of straw in his hand. Ivan swooped on Gavrilo like a hawk on a lark. The two men struggled, each fueled by hatred for the other, until a head wound caused Ivan to black out. When he came to his senses, Gavrilo was gone, and Ivan's back shed was on fire. The flames leapt to the side shed, and then the strengthening wind spread the flames to Gavrilo's shed and beyond. They were neighbors, remember? They barely managed to rescue their families. Everything else, everything else was lost. Both properties consumed in the fire, and by the end of the night, half the village was burned down. The feud ended shortly thereafter. The two men stopped quarreling, and so did their families. While new homes were being built, both families lived together. And eventually, the village was rebuilt. And Ivan, well, Ivan did not forget his father's instruction. My son, if you let it fester inside you, it will only be worse. Put out the fire before it has time to spread. Perhaps there's one of you this morning that needs to hear those very words. Put out the fire before it has time to spread. 
The title of Tolstoy's story is Neglect a Spark. Neglect a Spark and the House Burns Down. Maybe there's someone who wronged you long ago, someone in your own family perhaps, a coworker, a friend, maybe somebody in this church, and you've not let it go. You've not forgiven. There's a spark there. Neglect the spark and the house burns down. We bear with one another in this community and we forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven us. Paul wraps up this first part of the passage with a couple of summary statements still on this same topic, verses 14 and 15. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Above all these, or on top of all these, remember he's using the language of being clothed, adorn yourself. Now he says, as the outer, most visible layer, put on love. Love binds everything else together, holds everything else in place. Put on love, and then let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Christ has brought peace between us and the holy God. But here, the emphasis seems to be on the peace that Christ has brought to us within this beautiful community. The verb rule here is a word that can refer to the action of a referee or an umpire, someone who renders a verdict in a contested situation. So to paraphrase, let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart and in this community. That's how we should live with each other. When there are those contested situations, when difficulties arise, the ruling factor, the umpire, is the peace that Christ has brought us. We're brothers and sisters in Christ before we're anything else. And that changes everything. This is the beauty of the Christian community, how to be beautiful. Secondly, in the shorter part of the passage. Now Paul tells us how to stay beautiful, how to remain beautiful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Here he returns to that primary theological idea of the letter, the supremacy and the centrality of Jesus. Jesus is preeminent. He surpasses all others. What we need is Jesus, not Jesus plus something else, just Jesus, simply Jesus. And Paul has made this point again and again using a variety of images to reinforce that theological point. Back in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, the image he used was being planted or being rooted in Jesus, like a tree that's planted in the right place and left there will thrive, so we must be planted, rooted in Jesus. Well, now he changes the image. He almost reverses the image, though still making the same point. Now the point is not that we must be rooted in Jesus, but that the word of Christ should dwell in us. The word of Christ is the word about Christ. The message about 
Christ, who he is, the Son of God, and what he has done for us. He laid down his life for us so that we can have forgiveness of sin and new life in him. This message, Paul says, must dwell within us, take residence, make a home in our hearts. Now remember what I said at the very beginning of this passage. When Paul tells us to put on something in this passage, he's not interested in a brand of clothing, but in a brand of living, the Jesus type of living. These are the virtues that Jesus models and that he enables us to model. Now, if that's true, if Jesus is the source, if he's the one who supplies this way of living, then it makes sense that for us to remain in this type of living, we must remain with Christ, rooted in him, his word dwelling in us. It works something like this. Do you remember the character Rapunzel? Do you remember Rapunzel? Have you seen the Disney movie Tangled? I've seen it more times than I care to admit because it's my wife's favorite. More times than any man probably should ever see a single princess animated movie because that's how much I love her. Rapunzel, let me remind you of the story if you don't know it. Rapunzel gets this power from a, a special plant, a flower, I think it is. I feel like I should know the details better all the times that I've seen the story, but it's, it's a bit vague right now. So it's a flower, I think. She gets this special power, and then she's kidnapped by the evil Mother Gothel because Mother Gothel knows that as long as she has Rapunzel, that special magical power flows through Rapunzel, flows through her hair, and so as long as she is near Rapunzel, she will have access to perpetual youth and beauty. Beauty. So she locks Rapunzel away in the tower, knowing that she can have this great beauty if only she stays close to Rapunzel. Now, this is a rather sinister example, I admit, but still it works. You see the point I'm making. If we are going to remain beautiful, it will only happen by remaining with Jesus. He's the one who enables us to live this type of beautiful life. So we can't have it without him. We must remain rooted in Christ, or as Paul says here, his word must dwell in us. So how does that happen? How does the word of Christ come to dwell within us? Paul gives us three activities that we should commit ourselves to that will help the word of Christ make a home in our hearts. He does that here in the same verse, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? How, Paul? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So there the three activities are, teaching and admonishing. We saw these back in chapter one where Paul said, him we proclaim, Jesus, we proclaim teaching and warning or admonishing everyone so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Teaching is instructing, instructing in both belief and behavior and always in that order. And then admonishing, admonishing means something like warning someone. Admonishing is saying, look out for that pit ahead. Come back to the right path, brother. That's admonishing. And notice that we teach and admonish one another. That means that this is not my work, it's our work. It's our work, church. This is why, gospel partners, last Sunday you took a vow 
Do you remember your vow? When those students stood here on stage to be confirmed, we asked you, gospel partners, to make a promise. You promised that you would love and encourage and when necessary, admonish. Same word. Admonish those brothers and sisters in Christ. See, there might come a time when one of those students needs a word of encouragement from you or a word of warning from you. And you have vowed to be there for them because this is a community, life together. So remember that vow, teaching and admonishing one another. And to this, Paul adds singing. And he's very clear here that we should have a variety to the church's music, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Singing works the word of Christ deep down into the heart. You know, I've walked with a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ to the doorstep of death. We talk, we pray, I ask them questions. Sometimes I'll ask them, what is your favorite passage of scripture? Sometimes they can remember. Other times the mind is starting to shut down and they can't remember much. But you know what they can almost always remember? Music. Music. The words to their favorite hymn or favorite song, they can almost always remember it. Music works the word of Christ deep down in the heart. Paul knows this. So he calls us to be people who sing, who sing. And then he gives us one concluding all-inclusive command here. Verse 17, another one of those well-known verses in Colossians. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. With this final verse, Paul makes it clear that worship does not end when the music does. Worship does not end when we recite the Great Commission and leave this property. Worship involves everything we do with our lives. Whatever you do, in word or deed, the totality of our existence, do everything and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning that we're mindful of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We're alert to the reality that we are his people. We live for him. In the passage we'll look at next Sunday, Paul will give us two specific examples of how to do everything in the name of the Lord. He'll talk about family, how to do family in the name of the Lord. And he'll talk about vocation, work, how to do your work in the name of the Lord. That's next Sunday. But today, he brings this passage to an end with another call for thanksgiving. You know, Colossians is a short letter. It's just four four chapters long. Each chapter has at least one reminder for us to express our thankfulness to God. Three times, I think, in just this passage, there's been some type of a call to give thanks. Paul wants us to live lives of thanksgiving. The opposite of gratitude is grumbling. And elsewhere, Paul says, do not grumble. Do everything without grumbling, he says. Now, if you're like me, there are lots of things that happen in life that we feel like, you know what, that's worthy of a good grumble. I feel like I should grumble about this. 
all the hours I've been working, not been feeling well, families always fighting. There's all sorts of things that happen to me that I feel like that's worthy of a good grumble. But Paul says, no, there's no place for grumbling in this community. In all things, we should give thanks to God the Father through Christ. How can we give thanks in all things? Because Christ is preeminent. He surpasses all others. You don't need Jesus plus something. You need Jesus, simply Jesus. And so that means that whatever you're facing in life and whatever you have or don't have, if you have Jesus, or more accurately, if Jesus has you, then you have everything you need. So don't grumble. Give thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks this morning. Thanks for the good news of the gospel, the peace that the cross of Christ has brought to us, peace with you, God, and peace with each other. Oh, help us to live out that wonderful message of peace and love. God, help us to be the beautiful community you have created us to be displaying faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully all of these virtues that we have seen in this passage this morning. God, give us compassion for each other. Move us to show kindness toward each other. Help us to be people of humility. People of meekness, power, strength under control. help us to be patient some of us right now are having to wait on something and it's hard help us to wait with a calmness and a peace that only the gospel can provide and in all things help us to bear with one another and to forgive we don't want to neglect the spark so by the power of your spirit and with the truth of your word help us to put it out to put it out not delaying any longer saying what needs to be said doing what needs to be done forgiving others as we have been forgiven by you all in the name of Jesus we pray amen